We're glad to have you here. It's a new series. It's a series we're ending up today, actually, on American Idols. And we've been talking about money, sex, and power. And today we're going to talk about power. We're kind of lumping all of our idols into three categories, okay? Obviously, there are a lot of things that we worship, a lot of things that we have in our hearts that, that get in a place over God. We're going to talk about power today. The problem with power is it exemplifies itself in some wicked ways, doesn't it? I mean, when you give somebody power, what do they say? Absolute power corrupts Absolutely, right? And you've been around people that got power and they weren't very good with it. You know, they were like crazy. I read about this guy. He went in to see the doctor and uh, he had a sore throat. He went in to see the doctor and there was one of those power monger nurses there. You know, you ever meet one of those nurses, you know, Nurse Cratchit, she's there. She's like, you know, uh, you know, what do you, what, what's the problem? He said, I got a sore throat. She said, door number three, go into room number three, take off all your clothes, get up on the table. He's like, well, wait a minute, you didn't hear me. I just got a sore throat. She said, door number three, go in the door number three, take off all your clothes, get up on the table. He said, and I, I just have a sore throat. She said, go into room number three, take off all your clothes and get up on the table. He's all right, whatever. So he goes in, he starts to undress. He undresses, he turns around. There's another naked guy in the room. And they're looking at each other. It's kind of awkward. And the guy says, man, that nurse is something, huh? And the other guy said, tell me about it. I'm the UPS driver. <laughs> sometimes, uh, sometimes when people get power, it just goes to their head, you know? And, that, and that's the problem. We, we got these idols that we put up. And we are always trying to impress people. That's another problem with power. That's another problem with success. I did. Somebody sent me these. I thought it was great. There's a company in Germany that makes garage door pictures. That you could put, isn't that cool? You put it over your garage door and it makes people think that your door is open and you got cool stuff in there. Like, <laughs> these are some of them that I thought were great, you know? Oh, yeah, I got my race car parked in here. Bars of gold, <laughs> vats of wine. Oh, this is good, huh? Here's my tank. Yeah, I got it parked there. Here's my stealth bomber. I guess this one's for preachers only. I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I'm going to get that one. Um, the problem with this whole thing is that uh, an idol is anything that we put up above God, okay? And I know we don't do it on purpose. I know we're not trying to impress people with our success. We're not climbing that ladder of success that we, that we just talked about in that drama. You know, we're not climbing that because we think it's better than God. We just do it because it's easy and it's natural and that's what happens. The problem is, here's our theme verse. John said, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so we know, that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. He is the Son, He is His Son, we are in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God and eternal life. And then He has this little parenthetical statement kind of at the end. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. When you put that together, you realize John's writing this letter, and, you know, he wants these people to, to be really encouraged. And he gets down to the end of it, and he's like, hey, Jesus is true, you're in Jesus, He's true, we're true, everything is true. And he's like, oh yeah, and keep yourself from idols. Because whenever you start worshiping these other things, whenever you start putting these other things above God, these things that are false, then your life becomes false. There's true and there's false. And there's nothing wrong with money, sex, power, any of these other things. But, but when we get them above God, then all of a sudden when they become our gods, when they become the thing that we are trying to attain, then our lives become false. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God invented us like a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. It would not run on anything else. God designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering with him. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There's no such thing. 
There's true and there's false. Whenever any of these other things get above God, then our lives become false. Let me take you back to Moses and the Ten Commandments. I talked a little bit about this along the way, but I want to fully explain this whole story to you because it's really interesting. Moses has been up the mountain going to get the Ten Commandments. I don't know why it took 40 days, but he's up on the mountain 40 days, okay? God writes really slow. I don't know what it is. He's up on the mountain for a really, really long time. But put that in perspective, Cinco de Mayo is 40 days from now, okay? May 5th. Imagine that from today until May 5th, we're sitting around waiting on Moses to come down from the mountain. I got to, you know, I got to give them a break here because the people, here it is in Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I love that, you know? I mean, the guy's done the ten plagues. He's, he's led him across the sea, part of the sea. That guy, what was his name? Moses. Yeah, as for him, we don't know where he is. He's gone, so we need some new gods. Aaron takes their gold jewelry, makes a golden calf, and says, Tomorrow there will be a festival to our new god. The idea is that there's going to be a big ceremony where the golden calf would get, I don't know, activated or something. You know, I don't, you have to call from your home phone. I don't know how that whole thing works. They're going to activate the golden calf to do something for them. So Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he's got the Ten Commandments, and he, you know, he breaks them, and he's angry. And Aaron is like, look, look, Lord, my, my Lord. He says, do not be angry, laying it on a little thick. He says, you see how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, they said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That's all true. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> That's literally what they said, what he said. The Hebrew word here is bada boom, bada bing. I threw the gold into the fire and bada boom, bada bing, out came this calf. I have no idea what happened. What, what, what is Aaron doing? He's shifting the blame. Anytime you get caught worshiping an idol, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to shift the blame. Nobody walked in here with a, let me tell you about my idol t-shirt, did you? Because we're not, pro we know. We know when we get busted, we know through this sermon series, through whatever God's doing in your life, maybe uh, as Debbie was talking about, when God wakes you up in the middle of the night, you know that there's something there, you're busted, and you're not going to own up to it. You're going to shift the blame. That's exactly what happened here. Now, let me fill you in on a little secret about this whole golden calf thing, okay? I've been pondering this this week. Why in the world, why would they give their gold up and make a calf? Did they really, really, really think that this golden calf was going to be something that they could actually, was it going to do something for them? I don't think so. You have to understand that the golden calf was a, a, a god, an idol, that they had seen worshipped in Egypt. Okay? Remember, they've been in captivity in Egypt all of their natural lives, so all they've known growing up is the Egyptians worship the golden calf. Well, did they ever see the golden calf do anything for the Egyptians? No, no, no. But they saw how the Egyptians worshipped the golden calf. And I couldn't explain it any differently than the worship of a golden calf is a drunken orgy. So the people are all hanging around. They're all singing around the bottom of this mountain for 40 days and they're getting kind of bored. And they've seen all their life, though, what happens at the golden calf stays at the golden calf commercials on TV. And they're starting to think to themselves, hey, you know what? Why don't we have a party? So they give up their gold and they make this golden calf. What's the problem? The problem is not their head. The problem is their heart. 
I don't believe they were stupid enough to think that a golden calf was going to do something for them. I believe that their hearts were intent on doing something that they knew they weren't supposed to do. Ezekiel 14 says these men have set up idols in their hearts. A real problem is not a statue in the temple. It's what's gone on in your heart. Paul said in the New Testament, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. That's what happens when our hearts get in the wrong, in the wrong place. Why do we do this? Because we know we can control these gods, right? They knew they could control the golden calf. They knew they could do what they could worship the way they wanted to worship. They could have a big party and, and, and do the evil things they wanted to do. If that was their God, if the real God was their God, they knew they weren't supposed to do that. So we substitute the wrong ones and we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Tim Keller wrote a terrific book I've been using for this message series. He calls it Counterfeit Gods. And he's got a remarkable quote in there. He says it's actually from a couple of biblical scholars who say this. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. The central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. I mean, I don't disagree with him. Think about this. When you think about the first commandment, it is no other gods before me. The second commandment is don't make any graven images, right? The, the, the basic command, the primary text of ancient Israel was from Deuteronomy, which said this is what the, the priest would quote over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That was the primary thing. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He immediately said, well, duh, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Primary thing, the primary central principle of the Bible is the rejection of anything else that gets in the way of our worship of God. So you've got to ask yourself why. Why does God hate idolatry so much? Is God insecure? Does, does God get his feelings hurt up in heaven when we start putting something else on a pedestal over him? I really don't think so. I think God is a lot bigger and a lot more loving than we could possibly understand. I don't think God's up there in heaven going, oh, man, I wish they wouldn't do that. It hurts my feelings. I don't, I don't get that. What I understand is that God is our loving Heavenly Father knows that when we worship idols, when we let something else get in the place of Him, we're filling up our tanks with something that's not going to fuel them. We're doing something that is going to hurt us. If you have a three-year-old at home and you decide to leave the three-year-old on their own all day to take care of themselves, what's going to happen? They're going to, at, at, at best, they're going to eat nothing but cookies and ice cream. They're going to make a big mess. And by the time you get back to the evening and come back around and see what's gone on, at best, they're going to have a tummy ache. They're not going to feel good. They're going to be crabby and they're not going to understand what they've done to themselves. At worst, they might have been playing with the stove. They might have gotten out the household cleaners. At worst, you might have some real damage on your hand. They could kill themselves. When God's looking down from heaven and he says, don't put, everything, don't put anything in front of me, don't put money or sex or power, what he's saying is those things can hurt you. Okay? There's nothing wrong with household cleaners. There's nothing wrong with the stove. There's nothing wrong with cookies and ice cream. Amen? In, in its proper perspective. But if that is what's starting to control your life, it's going to hurt you. And God understands that. John Calvin said the human heart is an idle factory. It's an idle factory, man. We just, we just keep churning them out. We live in this idle factory. So we've been talking about money, sex, and power. Again, rolling everything kind of into that. And let's talk about power today. It's perfect that I can talk about this during March Madness. 
because the, the whole beautiful part about the, the, the symbolism here is think about what we've done, okay? We've taken 64 basket, college basketball teams, the lucky ones to make the tournament, and we've watched them play each other until we can get to the place where somebody comes out on top. It's kind of a microcosm of our entire world, isn't it? We live in a tournament world, you know? Somebody's got to beat somebody so that somebody can get up on top. Somebody gets to be or somebody needs to be number one. That's the way our world works. That's the whole system, okay? It's not working out real good for me. I still got Kentucky, but, you know, we'll see. The rest of it's pretty messed up. I don't know if anybody else has done any good. But we get to watch this, and we get to watch our team beat the other team or our team lose to the other team, and then they're out, and, they, you know, they're done for the rest of the year. That's the microcosm of our world. MIT professor did a study of Olympic medalists, speaking of this competition and sports thing. He did a study of Olympic medalists, and he wanted to study their happiness and, and how fulfilled they were after the Olympics was over. So he, 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 he surveyed all these Olympic athletes, and he found that the happiest group of people after the Olympics were over were the people who what? Won the gold medal. Okay? Absolutely. I mean, the happiest people are the ones that won the gold medal. The second happiest group of people, any guesses? The bronze medal. Did you hear that? Several people got the right answer. Not the silver medal. Silver medal is second best, right? The bronze medal were the second happiest people. Why? Because the bronze medalists looked at all the people they beat, and they were happy that they got a medal in the first place. The silver medalists couldn't do anything but think, oh, if I just would have been that much faster, that much better, I could have had the gold. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exactly how our world works? We want to be number one. That's the way it works. It worked all the way back that in the Bible, Jesus' disciples. Can you imagine? You followed Jesus around for years, and you get to this one point, and you're like, hey, Jesus, this is James and John. Jesus, could we be like number one and number two? They basically called shotgun. Jesus, can we have shotgun in the kingdom? Can you imagine? That's really what they did. And Jesus was like, oh, guys, you've got to be kidding me. And he pointed to a kid making mud pies, and he said, there's number one, okay? There's shotgun. You, you need to be like a child. The greatest needs to be like the least, like the servant. But we're always comparing. I heard about a young man named Brad who worked up the nerve to propose to his girlfriend. He was real nervous. He didn't quite know what to say. He's, he was like going to talk her into it. He said, sweetheart, I, I know I'm not wealthy like Tom or handsome like Tom or as well-educated as Tom, but I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And his girlfriend said, I love you too, but tell me more about Tom, you know? <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, that's what it is. Mary Bell, a counselor who works with high-level executives, said, achievement is the alcohol of our time. She goes on, these days the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their lives. You're successful so good things happen, so you complete a project and you feel dynamite. And that feeling doesn't last forever, so you slide back to normal and you think I've got to start a new project all over again, which is normal. But you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. Pop legend Madonna described her success this way. She said, I have an iron will and my will has always been to conquer some feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and I discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me. And even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody and my struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Isn't that true? What, where are you at? Somebody sent me these stages of... Uh, of work. Let me see if this sounds 
close to what life is like for you. Phase one is when you get to your office, you're, uh, <laughs> you're listening to jazz and your first day at work is great and your coworkers are wonderful and your office is cute and you love your boss. Phase two, you're listening to pop music. <laughs> After a while, you're so busy, you're not sure if you're coming or going anymore. Phase three, you're listening to heavy metal. This happens after about six months. Phase four, you're listening to hip-hop. You start to become bloated. You gain weight. You're not exercising. You're drinking too much caffeine. Your coworkers bug you. Phase five, you're listening to gangster rap. After more time, your eyes start to twitch. You forgot what a good hair day feels like as you just fall out of bed and go to work. Phase six, you're listening to the voices in your head. You lock the office door to keep people out. You wonder why you're even here in the first place. Why did I come to work today? It starts to get like this, doesn't it? It starts to get like this grind where we're just constantly trying to get ahead. We're trying to get above everybody else. We're trying to be number one in our tournament. Let me illustrate the power of God with a story from the Old Testament, okay? The power of God, I should say, with a story from the Old Testament. Naaman was this commander in the army of the king of Aram. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded. This is 2 Kings 5. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. And he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, notice how the 2 Kings author piles up all these accolades and accomplishments. And he's a this and he's a that. And oh yeah, his skin's falling off. Naaman's leprosy re- represents something to us, Okay represents that no matter how hard you work, no matter how, how powerful you are, how successful you are, how much you've climbed the ladder, whatever's gone on, you still really aren't in control. You climb the ladder all you want, but you can't control it. Now, bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served, his na- served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl had said. By all means go, the king of Aram said. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking ten talents, 750 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels, which is 150 pounds of gold, ten sets of clothing. And the letter he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. He took a bunch of money, some clothes, and a note from the teacher to the king of the other land. Why? I, I, I don't know. It's a good question. The servant girl said go to the prophet. She didn't say go to the king. Why did he go to the prophet? Because in Naaman's worldview, the powerful go to the powerful, right? You see this? This is the way it works. I'm number one in my little tournament over here, so I'm going to go to the number one person in the tournament over here. I'm not going to go down here to the prophet. I'm going to take all this gold. I'm going to take all these clothes. I'm going to take a note from my superior over to your superior because this is the way the world works. That's what he did. As soon as the king of Israel read the letters, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? Is he trying to pick a quarrel with me? What a drama queen. Where did this come from? 
Why does he have this crazy overreaction? Because it's all about the power, right? This is a power play, and he sees it as a game. Is he trying to pick a fight with me? Are we going to go to war over this? I don't know how to heal leprosy. I don't know what to do because power is success. These are the way things work. This is the way the political system goes. This is how it happens. Interestingly, when the king of Israel says this again, am I God? Can I kill and bring to life? He was getting at the heart of Naaman's problem. Naaman had made power his idol. He expected that on the basis of his achievement, he could go to the other people in the power class of his power class and get whatever he needed, except that achievement or money or power or gold or silver or a note from the king can't kill or make alive. Now, the king of Israel might have reacted like he had PMS, but at least he gave us the right perspective, didn't he? He said, I'm just a king... I'm just the ruler of the country. I'm powerful in earthly ways, but that doesn't really mean anything in regards to the universe. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why'd you do that? Why'd you tear your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, notice this, he sent a messenger to say to him. He didn't even get up off the couch. He's watching the tournament. He's like, here, here, go tell him this. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Elisha doesn't even go to the door. He doesn't have the normal reaction. Oh, General Naaman, I've always wanted to meet you. Thanks for coming. Would you like a cup of coffee? Is all that money for me? It's good to see you. Could I have your autograph? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even get up. He doesn't even get up. He sends a messenger and says, go jump in the river. Verse 11, but Naaman went away angry and said, I thought... He would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. He's been watching Harry Potter or something. I don't know. Where, where's he getting all this? You know, He's making all this up in his mind. And then he's mad about the river. He says, seriously, the Jordan, are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Seriously. This guy's got a life-ending disease, and there's only one person he's ever heard of that would be able to cure it, and he goes to the guy's house, and the guy says, go jump in the river, and he says, no. I'm not going to. That's beneath me. The river is beneath me. I'm not going to do it. What is going on with everybody in this story? Are they sleep-deprived? Have they had too much caffeine? What? They're like those cats, aren't they? Here's the answer. Tim Keller says this way. Naaman's entire worldview was being challenged. Naaman was angry because he thought he was important and powerful. He thought he was going to be asked to do something mighty, as it were. Bring back the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West or return the ring of power to Mount Doom. Any of those things would have been requests in keeping with his self-image and his worldview. But Elisha's message was an insult. Any idiot... Any child can go swim and paddle around in the Jordan, he thought to himself. That takes no ability or attainment at all. This request is beneath me. Just wash yourself then, Keller says, was a command that was hard because it was so easy. To do it, Naaman had to admit that he was helpless and weak and he had to receive his salvation and his healing as a free gift. Contrast that with this servant girl 
whose name we don't even know. Let me take you back to that. She's a captive of Naaman. She works for Naaman's wife. She'd been captured at best. That meant she'd been taken captive and sold off. At worst, it could have meant that her whole family was killed in front of her eyes. We don't know how she got here, but she's a slave. We meet her at the story. She's at the bottom of the ladder. She's at the bottom of the Syrian social structure. She's a racial outsider. She's a slave. She's a woman. She's probably young, 12 to 14, they're guessing. In short, her life has been ruined. And who is responsible? Basically, her boss, her slave master, Naaman, is responsible. So what's the deal? Naaman's got leprosy. Normally, when people get in a situation where they've been beaten down, they react with revenge or at least cynicism and bitterness I mean, he's got leprosy, and all she has to do is sit back and make leper jokes about him the rest of her life until he dies if she wants to. She doesn't do that. Why? Because she's got the right God on the throne. And she decides to do the right thing. And so she says, if only my master would see the prophet. There's sympathy, there's concern for her slave master. Thankfully for Naaman, his servants, he, he, his servants are smart enough to talk him out of his power trips. His power trip. Verse 13, Naaman's servants went to him and said, If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you to go wash and be cleansed? Basically, the servants are like, Dude, all you got to do, what, you know, you, you would have run a triathlon, you would have killed a dragon, you would have pitched for the Cubs for crying out loud if they would have asked you. Right? You would have done some really, really, really hard thing if he would have asked you. All he asked you to do was to go get in the river, so why don't you go get in the river? Can I just um, say something about the river thing for a minute? Let me talk about baptism. Uh, My dad is baptizing my brother-in-law down in Dallas today. I'm really excited about that. It's pretty awesome. A lot of you have the same reaction to baptism that Naaman was having to this river thing. So can I just talk to you for a second? We're told over and over in the Bible that it's just a simple little river dipping thing. And a lot of, you, a lot of people have a Naaman-like reaction to it. Well, I know the Bible is, has baptism is really by immersion and everyone, including Jesus, did it and is a way to demonstrate our allegiance to God. But I don't think I need to do it. Seriously. If God had asked you to do something crazy, you would have done it. He didn't ask you to do something crazy. He asked you to get in the water and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Something really very, very simple. Um, last night we had 11 people come up during the service, at the end of the service, because I challenged him to do this. I'm challenging you again today. If you missed the 740 people that got baptized a couple of months ago in one weekend, if you're one of those people that missed out on it, Hey, you know what? It'd be a good day today. Wouldn't it be great the weekend before Easter to get baptized and to celebrate what God has done in your life? And you haven't done it. We got clothes for you back there. Right outside those doors from now until the end of the service, there's going to be somebody there waiting for you. If you want to do it, come and do it. And we'll do it during the end of the service. We'll do it after the service, however you want to do it. If it's time for you to get baptized, you should just right outside those doors, you should do it. Don't put it off anymore. How cool would it be to get baptized this weekend and celebrate Easter next weekend? Naaman did. He did. I mean, it wasn't baptism, but he got dipped in the Jordan. It was the same principle. He went down. He dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and stood before him and said, Okay, I get it. 
Now I know that there is no God in all the world except the one in Israel. Okay. My idol's off. My power trip's off. My success thing, it's all off. I get it. I got in the water, and I'm clean now, and I really know who the real God is. And the, the difficult thing with that is is that it is difficult. It, it is hard for us to lay ourselves out before God and, and humble ourselves and submit ourselves to Him and say, okay, we need, I need your help. I can't do this. C.S. Lewis, the guy who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, all the imagery, Aslan is the lion and he represents Christ. He wrote a children's book as a part of this whole thing called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in the voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a young boy named Eustace. Eustace is a boy who had problems with power. He was, he was just a nasty, mean little kid, okay? He was always teasing other kids and torturing animals and telling on his friends and infuriating the adults, and he was just a nasty little kid. One night, Eustace finds, and in this, in this children's story, he finds an enormous pile of treasure in a cave, and he's elated, and he begins to imagine how great his life is going to be now because he has all of this treasure. But when he woke, he had turned into a hideous dragon. Lewis says, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. Becoming a dragon was a cosmic natural consequence, Lewis said. Because he had thought like a dragon, he'd become a dragon. Because when we set our hearts on money, sex, or power on our other idols, we become like them. We become hardened predators because we become like what we worship. So Eustace is now a very powerful being. He's a dragon, far more powerful than he ever imagined. But he's also very hideous, and he's fearful, and he's completely lonely, and he longs to be a boy again. See if this is tracking in your brain. He longs to be a boy again. He longs to be healed from his leprosy. He longs to be who God made him to be. One night, Eustace meets the mysterious lion, Aslan. And the lion challenged him to undress himself, to try to take off his dragon skin. And he managed to peel off a layer, but there was still a dragon underneath. And he tried to repeatedly do it, and it was still a dragon underneath. And finally, let me just read from Lewis. Eustace said, the lion finally said, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. But he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done myself the other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there was the skin lying on the grass, only much thicker and darker and knobby, more knobby looking than the others had been. And there I was, as soft and smooth as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been because I'd turned back into a boy again. The lion of the fairy tale, Aslan, obviously represents Christ. And the story bears witness to the fact what all of us Christians have discovered, that from time to time you have to lay yourself down before Christ and let him peel off all the junk that you've allowed to come into your life. So we're going to give you some time during this song to figure out what it is that you've been allowing to creep up on the pedestal. What's been creeping up on the throne instead of Jesus?
Great song from Switchfoot. We're just going to give you an opportunity to listen and to watch this video and to reflect. And let me just say one more time. If you haven't been baptized, you've been thinking about it, God's been bugging you about it outside those doors. Casey's standing here on the inside. There's somebody on the outside of those doors. If you want to get baptized, go over there, and we will do it during the end of this service. We've got clothes for you. We've got everything ready for you. For the rest of us, we're going to contemplate. We're going to listen to this song. I'm going to come back. I'm going to explain the ending. We're going to worship out of here, and we're going to leave in a very powerful and somber way as we celebrate what Jesus did for us. Now Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. Let me quote this again. And he stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel.